Hi, everyone, and welcome to the In the Shoes of podcast, where I make it my goal to see life as much as possible from someone else's point of view. Just like we all have a unique heartbeat, every single one of us sees life only from our own perspectives. Think about it. Can you see and process life exactly as Elon Musk sees and processes life? The answer is you can't, and it applies to every living conscious being here on this pale blue dot. To quote Zephod Bibelbrox from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, hi. Wait, there's more. There's more. I'm going to say more than just hi. So I have a great episode today. I had the privilege of interviewing Shintaro Shimosawa. He's a writer, a producer, a director in the film world over in L.A. He's worked with greats like Al Pacino, Anthony Hopkins, and just about a million other uh, names that would be fun to drop, but we just don't have the time. And he has some really cool perspectives to put forth here and some great advice about taking some risks and actually doing the things that you want to do in life, as well as some really cool advice he received from a head coach back in high school. Shintaro Shimosawa. Did I pronounce that right? That's correct. Boom. All right, cool. When did I start saying boom? Where, where does that originate from? Like the last name? Uh, I'm Japanese. Um, my father is from Nagano and my mom was from uh, Kobe in t- in, around uh, Osaka. Oh, that's so awesome, man. We're going to have to get into that a little bit because I really want to go to Japan really bad. So you, And I'm sure you're probably familiar with the, with the country. It's the coolest country in the world, hands down. <laughs> Dude, man, now I'm going to have to get a plane ticket and go like tomorrow. I highly encourage it. Yeah. All right. Well, it's settled then. I'm going to do it. Shin and I talked a little bit more about Japan and how freaking cool it is. And he had some excellent Airbnb advice, which also contained some good cultural differences that I thought were really relevant to the podcast. I recently Airbnb'd uh, my stay in Tokyo, and it, it's a cultural difference, but the way that the Japanese kind of take care of their homes is pretty pristine. So any Airbnb you go to, including the one my friend stayed at, any Airbnb you go to is like absurdly clean and very well serviced. So I'd highly recommend doing that because hotels are very expensive. While we were on the topic of Japanese culture, I wanted to get Shin's opinion on Haruki Murakami. Have you heard of Haruki Murakami? There's two Murakamis. There's a poet and an artist. Which one is that? The poet. The, the Well, the author. Yeah, yeah, you're like one Q eight four. Oh my, this guy is awesome, man. He's Seriously. pretty in- intense. Yeah, I mean, he's yeah. a very internal guy, and uh, it's very seldom that you find a truly soulful Japanese artist. <laughs> I know that sounds weird, but again, I think it's a cultural thing. Uh-huh. They don't they don't put that much currency into creative. They put a lot of currency into business. Yeah, he embodies what all that is creative and introspective, like you said. All right, I think it's time to get to the first question. What shoes are you wearing right now? Uh, Nike Freeze. Nike Freeze. Nice. Yeah, they're like they're like running shoes. They are insanely light. I, I got them uh, on Black Friday last year. Nice. <laughs> for really cheap, and I love them. They're so light. It's like walking on air. You are welcome, Nike. Dude, all right, that's cool. So how would you, if you had to, define yourself in the third person? How would you do so? Um, creative. Not confident, wishy-washy, and Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That is 
That's super cool. The I I admire the and respect the honesty there, the wishy-washiness, because I can totally relate. And you reminded me of, well, Henry Rollins, who said, I don't have any confidence and I don't want any. It kind of keeps him going, I guess. I don't know if you can identify at all with... Uh, That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because he looks like an ex- absurdly confident guy. A hundred percent. Don't worry. I'll throw a link to the discussion Henry Rollins had about confidence in my podcast blog notes at intheshoesof.org. So in light of that, what is your fundamental passion in life? Well, it depends. If Going from like a macro, I, I like um, inspiring people or being creative or moving people in some way. Um, a little more micro, my my passion, uh, I was a DJ in LA for about 10 years. That was my day job. Oh. And I still voraciously DJ every night just in my bedroom. And I just, I just love music. So I love blending things and mashing things up. So DJing is my passion. And I guess filmmaking is my passion um, under the umbrella of being creative. Dude, that's really awesome. To you, is there absolutely no other way, no other thing that you would even consider in life? Uh, Yeah, I mean, if I had to start over, I would love to be um, working for a couple more charities. You know, as you get older, you realize that there's a lot of people in need in the world. And I wish I was doing more in that regard. So I if I had to roll it back and start over, I would do that. Oh, that's super cool. But there are probably a lot of opportunities, right, to do that. Well, I guess it depends on how you're probably pretty busy, right? You know, where I can help out where I can. I try to belong to a couple of groups that do help out. But, you know, it's very localized. I I meant like really dedicating your life to like a friend of mine, uh, one of my best friends, her name's Erica Toriello. She moved to New Orleans after Katrina hit and helped and joined an organization that helped rebuild homes. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was a big life change for her. And I, I really, I've always admired that. Yeah. It's super cool for sure. I I think it's, well, it's pretty obvious too, that it just is impacts your life so much when you can actually get out there and, and help others. I mean, can you expand on where and how you grew up? Uh, I grew up in Chicago, Illinois, in the not so greatest neighborhood of, uh, it was called West Rogers Park. And back then in the 80s, it was a pretty bad neighborhood. So um, it was, a, I had a very interesting upbringing. You know, I went to a grammar school and uh, that was kindergarten through eighth grade. And it was all, it was all pretty rough. And then uh, moved to a suburb for high school and then uh, ended up in Washington, D.C. for college at the George Washington University. Oh, no kidding. DC. Yeah. Nice. Like when you talk about it being a little bit rough, what, what do you mean? I was held at gunpoint probably three times before the age of 14. Uh, it was constant fights. There was gangs. It was probably about 96% black. And I know it's not PC to say that now, but back then it, it, it was a thing. It didn't matter. Like there was a black neighborhood in Chicago and, and those neighborhoods happened to be really, really rough. Mm-hmm. And since then things have changed quite a bit, but, um, you know, in, in that little pocket of time, there were Chicago. I mean, for what it is, I love the city, but it, it still feels segregated sometimes. But it was always very segregated when I was growing up. Yeah. And you growing up, uh, you know, with your your uh, ancestry being Japanese, how did that come into play in those types of neighborhoods? Well, it was funny, like in that neighborhood, everybody's a racist. It just, it just <laughs> wow. happened. And, uh, it is, man. and, you know, I got my taste of racism, you know, like it was, I got into a lot of fights because of it. It was part of my identity. And, I, you know, to be quite honest, growing up when you were a little kid, you kind of, 
And, you know, there was uh, Chicago was my world and the world was white and my neighborhood was black. And I had wished I was black or white when I was a kid because it was just easier to assimilate, to fit in um, when you were a deep minority, <laughs> not just a slight minority, a deep minority. Um, so it did affect my upbringing. You know, I did probably didn't embrace my culture as much until I got a little older. Mm hmm. Meaning I didn't speak English until I was, about, I was about five years old. Then I didn't speak Japanese, even though my mom forced me to go to Japanese school. I didn't really speak it until I was out of grammar school into high school. Yeah. And did you, growing up, did you take trips over to Japan to kind of get to know? Yeah, all the time. Oh, yeah. I loved it. Oh, I bet, man. That is awesome. It was, it was tremendous. It's, it's one of the most beautiful countries in my opinion. The people are just so unbelievably nice there and they're unbelievably gracious and giving and I have a major love for that place. And so, Shin, you're a, you're a filmmaker, a producer, a writer, all that. Is that, if I'm not mistaken? That's correct. When did it come into play that you realized, you know what, I am a, I'm a creative here. I don't care, you know, whatever's going on here, whatever kind of obstacles I'm facing. Uh, when did you decide you know what, this is this is what I'm going to do. This is my purpose on earth. Uh, creative, uh, you know, I, I was always, uh, you know, drawing and, and, and just thinking about things and thinking about how to interpret things. But I think once I was out of college and, you know, I moved to Los Angeles because I wanted to, I wanted to make films um, and just kind of get my foot in the door. What's really great about LA is it, it does have a collection of people that are very like-minded. So you don't feel like you're, um, different or you're a pariah if you come in and you just feel like you want to be creative and you don't know exactly how what your outlet's going to be yet, whether it's making films or writing or um, writing novels or composing music. I mean, there's just so many creative people here. And, you know, there's pockets of New York City that are much the same. I think when I got here in L.A., really, I really just started to embrace it. That's so cool. And I know exactly what you're talking about. Whenever I go to L.A., I don't know what it is, but I tell people, and not everyone agrees with me, some people don't like L.A., but yeah. when I go to L.A., I'm like, dude, I I feel so at home, and I feel like, oh my God, the people are, it just resonates with me. Like, the vibe is, I don't know, it coalesces really well with me. You grew up in Chicago, you went to college in D.C., and uh, then you landed in L.A. What kind of struggles did you face there trying to get in, especially for the rest of us who are in various parts of the country? We think of L.A. and we probably think of Axl Rose and Welcome to the Jungle or something, you know, of people trying to go out there and making it. How did you find that it was, you know, a, a struggle? Absolutely. I mean, it was it's really tough when you first come to a, Los Angeles in particular as an actor or as a writer or as a director. Uh, can be very difficult only because there's so many people that are coming at the same time and wanting to do the same thing. So it can feel very competitive. The one thing I did learn was if you are able to navigate and keep your head above water and basically just get a job right off the bat, waiting tables or just having money to live and being creative at night, eventually those two things will coalesce. Eventually you will be working at a job where you can be creative. But it, it does take a little bit of time, and it's very scary for a lot of people to come and uh, feel like they're in a sea of others. But if if you are creative and everyone in your family is telling you you're, you're creative or you should be making films and people, whether it's teachers or whether it's peers, are saying you should be in Los Angeles either acting or you should be directing or you should be writing, 
then you probably have it and you probably have a lot more than um, the flood of people that do come to Los Angeles. So I highly encourage. If it's obvious that you have that little spark of something where it's like you have a natural knack for it, maybe then most definitely. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's, well, for all the flood of people that do come to Los Angeles, there are people that don't have a natural knack for it. There are people that are just saying, I I just want to do it. And they might not have exactly what's required. And, you know, what's required isn't rocket science. If you understand films or if you understand television and you understand that it is a fantasy world that is created by people and and that (laughs) creating that fantasy world is exciting to you and you feel like you, you can do that then I would highly suggest people at least try it. I mean, you know, for me, when all throughout my 20s and all throughout even my early 30s, there was a lot of friends that would call and say, I'm thinking about making the move. And it's not a marriage. You know, you can come here for a year or two, try it out. And if you don't like it, you can always move back. It's not It's not a be-all, end-all. So for me, yeah. I, I always encourage it because if people don't do it, and I've had a lot of those friends that have have never done it, they I, I do feel the regret on their end. I do feel like they they felt like they could have taken their shot and they just didn't. And then, uh, you know, as they get into their 40s, they get set in their ways, they get they have families, and it's a little harder to make the move. So um, yeah. while people are young, I highly encourage just trying it out. I mean, if you think about it, and at the end of our days, I always bring this up and especially when we get into more like deeper discussions about life and actually doing what we want to do and not in accordance with what society dictates or what puppet masters dictate. Like when you look at your deathbed self, you know, what do you want to look back and think? You don't want to have those kind of regrets. Um, Absolutely not. You know, like what do we have to lose? Right. So, yeah. What do you have to lose? You definitely don't want to be there saying, I wish I would have taken my shot. And, you know, even, there's even films about that that are really interesting. Totally. You know, so you want to make sure that if you are a storyteller, that if you are an actor and you want to interpret something, you, you're a very emotional person that feels like that emotion can translate on screen. Why not? Yeah. Wow, that's super cool, man. Seriously, that's that's encouraging, man. I appreciate that. Oh, of course. I'm sure a lot of listeners will appreciate that, too. So I want to get a little bit deeper here, here then. We talked a little bit about uh, even just mentioning the deathbed self. When when you die, mm-hmm. how do you want to be remembered? Um, I don't know why, but I, <laughs> I've had this idea in my mind where I just want to have a bunch of friends there and two big speakers and just blast radio heads. Radiohead's The Bends. It's not that the lyrics feel like they're by life or anything, but I just like the cadence of the song and I like how it builds. Um, To be remembered, you know, obviously, like one of the great things about making films um, is that they they last forever. So you you do have a legacy and having children would be something that that's in my future also. But, you know, having those two things as a legacy would be really satisfying for me. Yeah. And, you know, being remembered, I... I don't mind if I'm not remembered just as long as I get to uh, keep uh, keep the family bloodline going. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. They'll be like, oh, yeah, that guy. They, that guy used to make movies. Watch his <laughs> uh, crazy ideas on, on TV. Yeah, that's awesome. And so you said you're planning on having uh, kids at some point? Not to get too personal. Yeah, at some point. Yeah. yeah, cool. For sure. Yeah. Do you believe that all humans have a purpose here on Earth? I do. Yes, 100%. It's interesting because when you make decisions and and it affects people on a very micro level, you can see how it does change the world. It changes people's perspectives. And a a great example of that is, for whatever reason, sometimes I remember somebody saying something that 
was probably insignificant to them, but it was very significant to me. And it did change the way that my life path has gone. And, or at least it did influence it or and it influenced the type of person I am. And if I do have children or even in, in the stories that I try to put on screen, those two things are always permeating to me. And hopefully if those two things do affect um, somebody else down the line, then it's, it, I, I do believe that the, the purpose of humans is to interact with one another, love one another, and then create uh, a future for one another. Yeah, no, I agree with that. It was Bill, Coach Bill Richardson at Niles West High School. I was, uh, I was a junior in high school, and I was playing on the varsity team, and we were, um, our football team was playing for the state sectionals. And uh, I remember him pulling me aside during halftime and saying, you really have to know the plays, which I didn't. Um, and then I, I assured him I did, and when we went out on the first play, it was a really important play coming out of halftime, um, I ran the wrong direction. And uh, Coach Bill Richardson yanked me aside. I remember he gripped my face uh, mask on my helmet and yanked me towards him and in a very growling voice said, when you don't know where you're going, just put your head down and run as fast as you can. And at the time, he had referenced, you know, clearly is referencing my plays or lack of knowledge of those plays. But um, that phrase always kind of stuck with me. And I remember... uh, when I was on a TV show, um, and my first staff job, we were on a show called The Dead Zone, and I had a writing partner at the time. And uh, our showrunner was really angry at uh, how we were handling um, certain situations, and he was kind of coming down on my partner. And he looked to me and said, do you, do you understand what I'm saying to you guys? And I remember just repeating that phrase back to him, because it was what I always thought of when it was true. When I didn't know what I was doing, I always just kind of like ran as fast as I could. And I, t- I, I repeated that phrase to him and he kind of smiled and wanted to know where I learned that because he was going to use it in a script. He thought it was very funny. And I told him and it was just one of those things that always kind of stuck with me, no matter what I was doing or what, uh, what I was trying to do. I always just followed that mantra. And thank you, Co- Coach Bill Richardson for saying that to me. Thank you, Bill. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? I was honestly expecting more of a you know, when you don't know where you're going, insert platitude here. You know, one of those pictures on the wall, you have a mountain in the background and all that. And yeah, so if you could elaborate on maybe some recent experiences where that was very applicable in your life. All the way through, I don't, I don't know. I think after I heard that, it was one of those things that carried over into college and then moving to LA for the first time. And then um, the first time I ever produced a picture was was a film called The Grudge with Sarah Michelle Gellar. And we had... Um, hired a Japanese director and a a set of Japanese producers to film the movie in Japan, in Tokyo. And um, Sony Pictures had sent a bunch of us out there to, as the American side, as the American producers, uh, to to co-produce the film with them. And I kind of talked my way into doing it because I was bilingual. I spoke Japanese and I spoke English. I didn't speak Japanese very well. But when I got there, I realized that I'd never been on set and understood the real mechanics of making a film before, which is hard enough, but to be in charge of doing that for another country was also <laughs> very, very difficult. But I remember getting there and just kind of putting my head down and running real fast and working really hard. And probably towards the middle of the shoot, it was very clear to the crew and to Sarah Michelle Geller and to a lot of the, of the other actors that I really, this was my first time, but I was working so hard and I was like the, la- the first one there and the last one out. And I was working so hard that that I was able to do my job correctly and just kind of navigate through a very complicated um, process of making a film. 
And more recently, I was given the opportunity to direct my first feature film myself. Um, I had been a writer and a producer for a long time, but I got to direct uh, my first film, and it was with Anthony Hopkins and Al Pacino. And um, these two guys are incredible personalities in the business. They both won Academy Awards, and uh, they rarely work with first-time directors. But the idea of working with these two guys, with these two kind of titans of the industry, was so intimidating and so scary. Um, and the same rule applied. I remember just, just saying, okay, I'm gonna just put my head down and run as fast as I can because that's the best thing I can possibly do. And you know, I was all cards up with them. I told them that I'd never directed a film before. I'd never, never directed a short film or a scene or a, a commercial or a play or anything like that. So this was my first foray into it. However, you know, I was able to, well, the one thing I do understand is filmmaking and story just because, more because I watch a lot of films, more because I understand what should happen at certain points. And, you know, without knowing everything technical that I should have learned if I had I gone to film school and directed my own films, um, in lieu of that, I was talking to them as a writer, just through story and through elements of how to tell a story and, and kind of how to tune a character over the course of the film. And then you know, what is building up to a certain climax and then what is happening after that. So it was a language they could both very much understand. So even though I didn't really know what I was doing technically as a director, I did know how to talk to them on a very filmmaker level. And uh, that's one thing they both really appreciated. That's super cool. So they didn't come down on you like, how dare you, Shin, bring us to... Well, you know, how, I don't know how they would actually... At least, not, at least not to my face. <laughs> right? I mean, I can imagine. Al Pacino, I mean, hopefully he wouldn't break out some of his crazier cartel mafia boss roles. And, you know, that would have been crazy. He's, but He's a very large personality and, and for good reason. He's, he knows how to become many different characters. It's very interesting to watch. Because, you know, at the, at the end of the day, we all know uh, Al Pacino is like as Don Corleone or Michael Corleone, sorry, or, or Scarface or uh, Donnie Brasco yeah. or Son of a Woman. But, you know, he's effectively been able to embody a bunch of different types of characters and wear many different masks. And totally. I think over the years, he knows, he just knows exactly how to tune that stuff. So it was just very interesting when we got to talking about character and we were talking about a hypothetical person that he had never met before. So we were talking about how to make that person into a reality. It was pretty awesome. One of my big takeaways here from what you're just telling me is that, and probably, you know, for the rest of us is a good, good takeaway is that despite not having necessarily 100% confidence in something or, I don't know, feeling like, well, you know, that's, that's only those people over there in Hollywood, they can do that stuff. But, you know, whatever it is we want to do to, hey, you know whatever it is we're doing, even if we don't know completely what we're doing, I mean, seriously, just run like hell towards whatever. <laughs> run, right? Absolutely. I, I really like that as opposed to just like staying in one place. So that's that's something we can all take away from that. I don't think we have anything more to learn now, Shin. <laughs> what kind of future do you think we have as humans? You know, it's interesting. When I was like a little kid, I used to like read these comics and I was like, you know what? In the future, this is what it's going to be like. In the future, they're going to cure cancer. In the future, um, if I have anything wrong with me, they, they should have some technology that'll fix it. And not much has changed, and in a good way. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is I think the future of us, I don't think things are going to change all that much. I'm writing on a TV show right now where it's 10 years in the future. It's just 10 years, right? But however, there's, there's a lot of um, care and attention put into what things will look like in 10 years, whether it's how doctors operate or how uh, cell phones are being used. 
But there's a lot of other considerations that get thrown into these creative meetings where we're like, I don't think fire trucks are going to look as different as we think they're <laughs> right. going to look in 10 years. Right. Because if you go back to 2007, nothing looks all that different. I mean, you know, we had the iPhone 4 maybe, or the 3GS, and right now we're at the 7. So I, I, I don't believe things are going to be all that different in the next few decades. However, there are things that we're doing now that might affect how, th- how that turns out. So yeah, I want to watch that television show, man. Can you give out the name? Is that or is that under an NDA yeah. or something? Oh, sure. It's called Zoo and it's on CBS. It's going to be premiering this summer. Uh, the third season is premiering this summer. What are some things that you're completely just thankful for? Friends. My mom was a single mom raising me and it's just my mother and I. So the number one thing I'm thankful for is her. But outside of that, without a family, um, you know, my the rest of my family lives in Japan. What's great is my friends have become my family by proxy, and uh, I'm just very thankful that friendship exists in the world. That people do support each other when when it's really necessary. And I'm also thankful, like you know, when when I see tragedy on TV, it burns me every time. But I'm also thankful when I see how people just rally and support and kind of come in and you know, like uh, when 9/11 happened, I remember watching the news and just seeing people from all over just want to come to New York and help. And that was really inspiring to me. So that I'm very thankful for. I'm also very thankful for uh, creativity because it allows people like me an outlet to, uh, to put our ideas um, out into the world, whether it's on paper or whether it's on screen. Yeah. Oh, most definitely. That's an awesome thing to be, uh, to be thankful for, for sure. So let me get to, the last question here. And it's kind of a, I'm going to set the stage a little bit. So let's imagine that you're strolling through Manhattan on a clear day when suddenly a Firefly-esque spacecraft appears and out steps an alien who Mm. looks remarkably like Harrison Ford. Now, for some reason, nobody finds this unusual. You are in Manhattan, after all. And the alien proceeds to ask you some questions. So after you explain where to find the best pizza and how to use Twitter to reach out to Val Kilmer, you know, things like that, the Harrison lookalike gets real with you. He lets you know that he's been sent on an intergalactic journalistic mission to find out not only the top things to do on planet Earth, but to ascertain how you see and understand life on this planet. And you have about, I don't know, five to ten minutes and he has a lie detector. You can't lie. You have to just be straight up honest with him. What would you tell this alien? You represent the human race here. Wow, this is a lot of responsibility. You know, it's interesting because, like, if you ask a writer this, they'll they'll be able to tell you what their hero of their story would say. They would be able to embrace those great things about humankind and and some of the pratfalls in a very elegant and eloquent way. If he asked me, I would be like, "Holy fuck, I don't know, man." Like, people are complicated. You know, people people are loving and they also backstab each other. I mean, it's going to sound like a lot of hypocrisies. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to sound like a lot of conflicting ideas because, you know, with every good thing, there's also a bad side to it. I mean, he, when you talk about what makes Earth so special or what makes mankind so special, there's always the good and the bad and there's always the, the darkness and the light. And I guess that's what keeps it interesting for us. And that's what keeps storytelling interesting. But on the reels, if if an alien were to say, "I'm bringing this back to my people," and they're gonna they're gonna <laughs> make a decision on whether to attack you guys or how to attack you guys, I mean, you know, and 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 he has a lie detector test, 
and I was honest, I, I don't know if they would walk away with the most clear idea from <laughs> me in particular. I appreciate the honesty, though. So what, what if he asked you to elaborate on what, like, what do you mean when you say that uh, the darkness and light, maybe that's a, foreign, a little bit of a foreign concept to him. I guess when, when you leave people to their own de- devices and they're completely autonomous, humans will have a tendency to, for every good thing that they do, may end up doing something bad or may have the inclination to do something bad. And that is kind of a bummer, but that is, that is what happens. So that's what I mean by light and dark. There's people that spend their whole lives going to the light and then they'll, they'll have a mishap and they'll dip their toe into the dark. Or there's people that just sprint straight for the dark and they don't, they, they understand what light is, but they just don't go to it. Yeah. Do you think in, what if he asked you one last question from the alien, then he has to go get that pizza that you recommended. He asks you, so are there... It would be artichoke. It would be arti- oh, artichoke. Oh, okay. Yeah, Excellent. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> Margaritas. There you the go. Best. So what if he then asks you, so do you believe that there are more people heading toward the light here on, on the planet or more people heading toward the dark? Or is it a, just a mishmash? I'm an optimist. I would explain that to him first and foremost. I'd say that I think about 80% want to go towards the light. I agree with you, man. Especially after after traveling through, I don't know, whatever nation it is, I find that most people just want to do good by, uh, you know, their friends and family and those around them in their communities. So I, I yeah, I'm too, I'm an optimist. Yeah, too, I mean, so, yeah. yeah. And one of the, one of the hard things is when you watch people do horrible things on television, in the news and in fictional TV, it's, it does mess you up a little bit. You're like, wow, there's a lot of darkness in the world. However, you know, the reality is like I was, I was on a spinoff for a show called Criminal Minds and um, they, they have a serial killer every week and there really isn't that many serial killers in the world. But the ones that we do know about, we want that information voraciously because we were afraid for our own safety, our children's safety. Um, but the reality is there's not many. Right. <laughs> So, you know, for the most part, there's very good people in the world. And for the for the select few, there's some really bad. Yeah. And the really bad get uh, quite a bit of attention, unfortunately. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Totally. Cool. Dude, well, I appreciate you doing this, man. It, uh, it really does. It means a lot to me, especially since I'm just getting this off the ground and everything. So is there uh, any site that you would want people to go to to learn more about you or any other, you know, movies or television shows or any creative endeavors or... I don't know whether you're DJing somewhere that you'd like to plug in right here. Uh, I, last year, I got the opportunity to direct a film called Misconduct, and it's on um, iTunes now. It's on uh, probably Stars or some kind of cable outlet. If you get a chance, check it out. We, we got to create an art film wrapped around a, a legal thriller, and it's I think it's a really fantastic film. So check it out if you can. Awesome, thank you. Misconduct. I'm gonna check that out too. Maybe I'll get some. Maybe I'll go up and get some good uh, pizza. I gotta go to New York now too. Again, because go to New York, go visit Tokyo. I mean, life is too short, you know. <sighs> You're totally right. You know, seriously though, I'm gonna I'm gonna reach out to you and be like, dude, I'm I'm actually going now to Tokyo, and this is why my credit card statement looks like this. So. You know, there's this new, I, I just caught the end of this on the news the other night, but there's this new website where you pack a bag, you go to the airport, <laughs> they don't tell you where you're going until you get on no the flight. No way! Whoa! Yeah, and it's, it's, it sounds pretty insane, but like, you know, when, when they were interviewing people, you could really see the types of people that were down to do it, and then there were people that just weren't. And, and what was interesting to me was 
there were there was like a, a a single mom who had like two kids with her and she was like i would totally do it yeah it was almost like the backwards effect of who i thought would do it <laughs> yeah, you know there's exactly. like a young kind of like a backpacker type kid who was like no i don't think I, w- I would and it was interesting because i think people do have an inclination to want to just get out and do something and, and sometimes it's just taking that last step and myself included it's, uh, taking that last step is is really hard you're like i want to go to egypt but i wish i could just teleport there i don't know if i want to book a flight and look through all the hotels yep however you know the reality is any at any point any of us can just throw down and do it you know it might be a stretch financially but you can do it and for me, again, like when you're talking about life experiences and things on the macro and, and what kind of regrets you would have before you pass on, those are the things that you would, you're would you going to wish you did, you know? Yep. I'm very guilty of it all, but as I get older, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to tell the girl that I like that I like her. Yep. You know what? I'm going to buy that bus ticket to, you know, whatever, Reno, and just check out the casinos there. You know, it's just things I, I've always wanted to do. I should just check it out and do it. Yeah. No, I agree. And I mean, it's, it sounds almost kind of uh, cheesy, but to, I mean, really not let fear in get in the way of us doing things that we really want to do because we're so good at self-sabotaging. Yeah. I know, I know I can be so totally. And, you know, in a very real way, that is how Hollywood runs in a very ideal level. I, I can sit here and say it's, it's an amazingly creative and fun space. However, commerce plays a huge part in it and you know like it's uh, the business of hollywood can be very unforgiving meaning you can have a film that you really want to make but hollywood might dictate that you put somebody in the movie that you don't want in the movie right Uh so let's just say you're making a film and you envision sam Shepard as this great stately senator but the studio says you know what you got to put bill murray in there Mm -hmm. it changes things however the metrics of hollywood on the other end really do add up to we we need to put this person in this film and sometimes that can hamper things so really being creative is also about ducking and driving and that's why lately i've just seem to like independent film more because you know the the filmmakers can really just embrace what they want to embrace you know and then talk to their financiers and say this is what the deal of the film is but i think it would be really spe- special if sam shepherd were in the lead and not bill murray those are totally random examples but that is the financial reality of some of these things can also uh, really, really weigh down the process. Oh, yeah, I totally get that. And I think that's probably why there are some authors, not all of them, of course, some authors that when they talk about Hollywood, they, it's almost like they have, uh, I don't know, a bad taste in their mouths. Or like, oh, no, mm-hmm. my, my book will never be made into a movie because uh, there was so much, I don't know if it's bureaucracy is the right word, but just, you know, like the they felt their book was going to be so mangled. I don't know if that you know, kind of plays into what you're talking about too. It does. I mean, it, it, it is a financial machine. So I also worked on the other side of it. I worked at a studio and um, understanding what people respond to on a global level mm-hmm. means you have to do particular things, meaning like the story has to be clear. The story has to generally, uh, if you're packaging a romantic comedy, they don't both die at the end. You can't have a downer ending on a romantic comedy because you're packaging something with certain people in the, in the leads. And even though the story might dictate that both people must die at the very end, the metrics of we will make $60 million versus we will make $200 million is a very, very large metric. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, like that, those things do 
they, they, they do come into play. So it's up to filmmakers to try to change people's minds to get them to a place where eventually they'll be like, oh, I love that romantic comedy. It was so funny and they were so great. And I loved that they both died at the end. Right. <laughs> Until that happened. I laughed and then I cried, you know? It was yeah. beautiful. Well, I appreciate it. And for everyone listening, this has been another episode of In the Shoes Of with Shintaro Shimosawa. And man, it's been freaking cool. And until next time. Hey, thank you so much for checking out this episode of In the Shoes Of. If you like or don't like the podcast, feel free to leave a review or reach out to me. My email is jnickel at intheshoesof.org. I'm Jeremy Nickel, the host and producer of the show. Until the next time, see you later.